0: Welcome to the February episode of the EVJ in Conversation podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today we'll be chatting about tendon injury with Roger Smith and bone mineral density in horses with PPID with Hal Shott. In this episode, I'm joined by Roger Smith, who is a professor in equine orthopaedics at the Royal Veterinary College and also our beaver president. As guest editor, Roger has collated an online collection of papers regarding tendon injury and has written a clinical insights piece about them titled, Who Says There Is No Progress With Solving Tendon Disease? Roger, thanks so much for joining us to talk about your virtual online issue on tendon injury, which everyone can find on the EVJ website. You've put together a great list of papers looking at tendon disease. So what prompted this?
1: Yes, well, actually, it was a request that uh, the editor of the EVJ, Celia Ma, asked me to do. And I think it's actually uh, um, a a routine thing for each president when they become president of of the Wine Veterinary Association are asked to put together a series of papers that have been published recently in the EVJ uh, in whatever area that you can pull together as a theme. And, of course, I've had, you know, 35 years of research on tendon disease and hence uh, there were quite a few papers involved with researching tendon disease in the list that Celia gave me and I thought this is a a really great opportunity to sort of I suppose spin a linking story throughout them and some people that looking at these papers may think it's a little bit tenuous at times but I think it does it does a good I think it's a you can draw these papers together and show that the actual field of of research into tendon diseases is, is, is pretty active and people are always a little bit depressed that we still haven't solved the problem completely and maybe that'll take many centuries to come, but at least it shows that we've got progress and that's, that's really I think quite encouraging when you look at the work that's being done.
0: So hopefully through this chat we can draw out the story that connects all these papers. Um, you've selected papers showing progress in our knowledge in three areas, pathophysiology of tendon disease, regenerative medicine, and uncommon injuries. So O'Brien, one of the papers you write about, um, wrote a large review paper on tendon pathophysiology and the degenerative mechanisms causing clinical injury. So what are the current concepts to explain why the horse is predisposed to tendon injury?
1: Well, this was um, a a nice review article from um, uh... The, the the senior author is Thorpe who who is a very talented uh, scientist working now at the at the Royal Veterinary College, so I know her, know her well, and she has done some really excellent work, sort of working on the on the areas of pathogenesis, understanding why these injuries occur, and what she's focused on, and I think it's a very sensible area to be focusing on, is the tissue that lies between the different fascicles within tendon. And um, this has proved an interesting area because it's it has to cope with quite a lot of elongation because most of the elongation in a equine tendon, especially for instance the superficial flexor tendon, that can stretch up to around sixteen percent at the at the gallop. A lot of that elongation is is not actually coming from the individual fascicles, but actually the ability of the fascicles to slide and elongate with respect to each other. And as a result, it's sort of a logical place to look at where some of the early signs of failure start to occur and a lot of the work that she's been doing in her group has shown that actually this area is also much more metabolically active than the cells within the tendon fascicles themselves and potentially a site of stem cell location as well so it becomes a key area to focus on for many reasons. Now, where I think it, it it's nice as well is that it supports the, the concept that's been around for quite a long time now. And and I, I think it's really putting a little bit more flesh on the bones, as it were, of this concept, that there is a preceding phase of degeneration that occurs prior to the onset of the clinical injury. When we see a, a tendon and ligament damaged clinically, it's a, it's often appears to be a sudden event. But we know more and more, and certainly the work that Siobhan's been doing, shown that actually this is very much the case that associated with aging um that there is a process that uh, that goes on in the tendon which ultimately um has um a a potential weakening effect uh, particularly in this area between the fascicles that predisposes the tendon ultimately to injury and of course it fits very well with what epidemiologically because these injuries become more and more common as the animal gets older and it's the accumulation of that damage um that is Becoming making the risk higher and higher as the animal uh, ages. So, from her review is really just reviewing the that sort of what's known about this this um, the the aspects of uh, cumulative micro damage, and then suggesting ways that that potentially uh, this can be mitigated. And it fits very well with the work we're doing at the moment because we're interested in cellular senescence, which is a well established aging mechanism for many tissues, Um, and so there may be ways of intervening in that. Um, as well as uh, potentially enhancing the quality of the the tissue, in particular that interfascicular matrix uh, between those fascicles in a way that might make the tendon more resistant ultimately to injury. So it's those sort of areas that I think still have a lot of mileage and and I think it's a really interesting review to read and and get up to date with actually quite a lot of work that's gone on to to sort of clarify the process that is happening under our eyes, as it were, without us really realising. Because the sad reality is that a lot of this early change, we're still looking at ways of of trying to identify that early. And we might come on to that later on in the, in, in the discussion.
0: I think that ties in nicely to my next question. Um, research has also been conducted into the difference in tendon adaptation between young and adult equids. Um, those that haven't and have started training... And the effects of training on fiber alignment. So, could you tell us a little bit about these factors and how they influence tendon injury?
1: Yeah. So, as it, you're right, it's sort of um, it's going from the sort of molecular side that we've just been discussing to more the sort of not necessarily gross, but that certainly on a larger scale that, that the the fiber alignment that we see in tendon. And the reason for that is because we have we do have a technique that allows us to um look um at those larger order structures so we're not talking about the fascicles i was talking about earlier on because they're much smaller than this but it's the it's the larger fibers as were, well, the groups of fascicles that are bound together in a tendon which we can assess their organization um, through the uh, through the use of ultrasound tissue characterization um, and and it's really that that is um covered in um in the papers we the uh, in the paper i'm talking about here which followed um the um the development or the 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 change i suppose in the fiber pattern that was apparent um during growth and during the onset of training and um that's interesting because that gives us an objective measure of uh, of organization so ultrasound tissue characterization to explain a little bit about it this is a machine actually originally uh, designed by um, a very talented practitioner in the Netherlands called Hans van Schie, who's actually on the authorship of this paper, um, uh, where where, a, where an ultrasound probe is is essentially moved mechanically along the length of the tendon, and this allows the machine you, you know, to to analyze the organization of the individual echoes, as it were, within a tendon to work out how well ordered it is, and it produces a, a um, essentially for it, it analyzes the, the the ultrasound scan, as it were, into four different types, um, and the ones that we think are good, which are labelled green, so that's easy to to uh, to recognise, are the type one fibres, which are the well organised ones. So um, it, it's the ones where we think when 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 everything is ordered nicely in a linear pattern, then the tendon's going to be the most functional. And then there is the type two, which are not quite well as organised. They're labelled um, um, blue; they're given the blue colour. And then you have um, um, red and black type three and four, which are just particularly less well organized. So we're interested in really, in in terms of the formation and the response of the tissue to exercise um, and to growth, is is the order, you know, how well orga- organized those type one and type two fibers are. And this paper is uh, it is interesting in the way that it's documenting some changes. I don't think they're necessarily. Um, dramatic but you wouldn't expect that to be uh, during early race training um, because if everything went horribly wrong within the phase of this um, period which I think if I remember rightly was um, was uh, over I think three months or so so it's not a long period but it was with the onset of training so you wouldn't expect massive changes but there were some changes in the organization and interestingly also uh, a change in the left to right um, distribution So in other words, there was a significant difference between left and right legs and that's often difficult to explain other than the fact um, I think this was done in the USA I think where a lot of the training goes around in one direction as far as I'm aware certainly they race in one direction that one-sidedness or um, you know it becomes more possible based on the mechanical theories of how tendons develop so there was some very interesting sort of um, changes that were Sort of suggesting that that we can detect influences of training on, on the organisation of the tissue. Now, this has been shown before, but um, this is is it's more more um, overall a number of different zones along the tendon over a longer period of time. So, it, it's sort of really establishing that there are changes associated with training. This is the first time that we can start with what I was talking about earlier about being able to detect some of the early changes. Now, I'm not so sure that these changes are necessarily bad, so they can be positive as well. So we need to understand a little bit more about what this ultimately represents. But it is showing that we are starting now to develop techniques that are able to look at at maybe some of the more uh, labile effects, you know, things that are reversible and intended. And that's really useful to be able to know, because then we can start to use appropriate exercise programs to harness the good things and try and minimize the bad things.
0: Um, sonorelastography has also been used to assess the post-injury function of the SDFT. So how does this work and does it show promise as a clinical tool?
1: Yeah, so again, this is another technique that's actually been around for quite a long time, Um, but it's constantly undergoing a little bit of development. I'm a little bit cautious in saying too much about the technique itself because I don't use it myself. but. This this paper comes from um, a group in uh, in Japan who I know very well, um, and um, it's really looking at um, at as you'd say sonolastography. And so what this is a technique whereby you get it as a byproduct as it were of taking your ultrasound scan. So the idea being is that you by pressing using the probe onto the tissue you distort the tissue, and because ultrasound is very good, as you know from measuring. The blood flow and stuff like that. It can measure movement as well, but and and so it can calculate from the distortion of the tissues associated with that pressure um, a a mechanical property, shall we say, uh, of the uh, of of the tendon. So you can imagine in this in the in the paper itself, um, this is uh, Tamura et al. That um, it it uh, talks about stiffness. In other words, it's how resistant the tissue is. Now the problems about this have been. Um, largely on the based on the fact that you are assessing a physical parameter but it's not necessarily the one we that we need for a tendon to be um, metabolic not, not metabolic, energetically efficient in storing energy and also being uh, a parameter that we want to look at during recovery from from injury um, that's relevant to the function and the and the outcome of the case so it is always going to be a little bit of a surrogate uh, marker um but this paper really just looked at how this changed over time, and and I think it's it's just showing the the ability of this uh, of this technique to monitor in a different way the healing process after injury. Um, and and as I was saying before, when we were talking about understanding the early events in in terms of the degenerative process that might precede clinical injury, we also need better techniques of monitoring the repair because we. One of the biggest, hardest decisions is to say, you know, now your tendon's healed and you can crack on. And it's a decision the vets are making every day of, uh, in every year um, uh, for for good, you know, athletes at the top level and also less um, uh, high level athletes, but all with the same question. And it, we're judging it based on a, essentially most of the time on clinical evaluation, of course. But. But also in the longer stage, that becomes less useful and more based on our imaging with ultrasound and stuff like that, which is a structural output. So being able to have other ways, other parameters, um, you know, this, is, this may give us better um, or, or other opportunities, I should say, to make, to make that decision easier. I, I don't think we're there with sonolastography, in my opinion, at this stage, but this is the first step in understanding it a little bit more, laying out what, what we can expect to see over time. Um, and, and therefore being able to accumulate then clinical data. And this is where the clinical research becomes really useful because this ultimately needs to be uh, valid. I mean, this is used in, in natural occurring injuries, but over time and experience, how useful it ultimately is.
0: So talking again about early detection of tendon injury, you've written a bit about molecular markers and how they've been investigated as potential predictors of tendon injury. So do you see these becoming clinically useful and available? um, And what exactly has been looked at?
1: Yeah, so I I probably should start my answer to this, or preface my answer to this question with a a sort of confession of a conflict of interest here, but only not because of financial reasons, but because I've spent 30 odd years trying to develop a, a molecular marker for detecting tendon disease that started during my PhD in the sort of early to mid 90s. Um, and um, a lot of that time, uh, I was working alongside um, the at least the um, the first and senior author of this particular paper. So this is Ekman et al. Um, working with a lab, very uh, talented professor in Sweden, Professor Dick Heinegard, who helped me a lot during my PhD. And um, Steen Ekman, who's the first author here, is um, uh, has also been uh, working tirelessly at developing uh, markers, often w- with the same. protein in mind which is cartilage oligomeric matrix protein mainly because it's it's quite easily released with a variety of physiological and pathological conditions because it's not well bound within the tissue it's also present in both tendon and cartilage and i think a lot of the 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 results from this particular study uh, potentially reflect more related to joint disease than than tendon but that's not surprising because as i say the the um the uh, protein is in both and what's really nice uh, this paper is is something that uh, i was have also worked on with this particular protein is looking at neoepitopes and what these are is when a when a tissue is damaged for whatever reason um usually it activates um uh, enzymes which then cleave the proteins at particular sites depending on the enzyme so the cleavage sites become quite consistent as a, and an indication Frequently, but not always, are of disease. At least when you choose the right cleavage uh, sites. Now, this reveals different epitopes, which are binding sites for antibodies um, that are not visible when the when the protein is is intact. So the idea being is that you can generate an antibody assay, which allows you to very specifically um, uh, assay, as it were, the the um, uh, the amount of the the damaged protein as it were now this makes it a lot more specific to injury and this is really over over uh, overcomes the big hurdle about measuring protein uh markers in in body fluids like blood and synovial fluid because you get an overlap with normal because there's a normal remodeling process for many tissues tendon is a little bit better because they're often the remodeling process is pretty minimal Uh, in in adult animals but nevertheless there is that overlap and so this potentially can be used to be more specific and and i think this study was was interesting in the way because it starts to document how again how what's happening in the real live situation with an animal which is trained uh, for instance because you've got to differentiate training from from uh, from pathology and uh, and also the effects of time of of taking samples because you can also have a circadian rhythm relating to these for these uh, release of these particular proteins so for that reason it was it, it's quite comprehensive in looking at a lot of these uh, different things and what's what's really interesting about it is that training seemed to induce a decrease but that was probably a a, a um a washout uh, effects um 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 after so once that you exercise you sort of wash out all the all the um epitopes which then return to normal after the exercise has finished. Um, but there were no specific alterations with respect to age. So it's maybe not so good for an age-related process, but it's probably quite specific to damage. Um, and then they did see that with acute disease, there was actually um, a uh, um, acute uh, joint disease, that is, um, rather than tender disease. There was a significant rises. So it was suggesting that, yes, it can predict injury, whether this is useful for predicting tendon disease is another matter, and it may be the fact that we need to be able to differentiate those two in other ways. And In other words, the medical marker becomes a a sort of screening process, and when the levels are high, you then say, right, well, well, now we need to look for what the problem is, uh, why these levels are high. So I think it's setting the scene quite nicely about what is potentially possible um, with these markers in the future as not just monitoring tendon disease, but also uh, joint disease as well.
0: So potential
1: use, but there's nothing clinically available at the moment? There's Yeah, so that's a good question. So in, in terms of commercially, in other words, an assay that you can buy or, and you can uh, submit a sample to a lab to do, no, there isn't at the moment. There are plenty of assays that have been out there for looking at joint disease in humans, but they're not potentially uh, routinely used. But I think the, there are nevertheless lots of studies which shows assays would be useful clinically. It's just the costs. I think certainly within the equine field, of developing an assay that's well validated, well um, monitored for quality control over time, that makes um, these assays uh, quite expensive to develop. So, and, and for a small market like the horse, especially many of these assays are, are, are can be are often specific for the horse. Um, then you cause the markets aren't high enough. Now I think, however, having said that, I think. Um, um, you know we don't we all look probably pretty negatively at the covid pandemic but one thing it has taught us a lot about is lateral flow tests and i think that technology is becoming very well developed and very practical for horse side tests so i think you know we already have the the stable lab test for saa for instance and and um and and so it's very easy to then develop um assays for these particular markers in that sort of using that sort of platform so i think there's great Prospects of actually these still becoming available, and but the biggest challenge then, of course, once they're available, is being able to understand when they are most useful to be used. But I think it does provide us an additional, as again, you know, an additional, you know, method to to consider use. Certainly for, you know, in in longitudinal studies on racehorses, for instance, where you're taking blood samples regionally regularly. Um, you know, I, I I still feel that there's there's mileage in in that. It's just we need to have the platform, the commercial platforms out there, and the appropriate assays, validated quality control, and all that sort of stuff. So there's still quite a lot of work to be done. But I think this paper does show what what how these markers are are starting to yield, I suppose, clinically relevant information.
0: Okay, so watch the space. Yeah. Um, moving on to regenerative medicine where are we at with the use of stem cells in tendon injury are they being promoted over other therapies what kind of lesions are they indicated for and how would you advise that they're used
1: yeah so there's an awful lot of work that's been done i mean i've been involved in the field for for 20 years now since we since we did the first horse um and there is as always with these new fields is that you start off thinking that it's fairly simple and then realizing it's a lot more complex So we probably, you know, we've made made a lot of advances. A lot of data out there now to 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 give us an indication of where they may or may not be useful. It is, however, still a uh, a difficult product, shall we say, in terms of it requires culture of cells at the moment. So, um, for that reason, the the uh, you know it's expensive to do, and it will always be that, and and it's also a Problematical with that expense of producing the product to attract a lot of big pharma in there to 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 upscale it to be something that um, that people um, can can or, or or pharmaceutical companies can produce something that is available off the shelf and can be used by you know vets in practice. So I think there are some real technical limitations in terms of where we're at in terms of whether they work or not. I you know, and I probably people will say I'm biased, but it's over the years. I wouldn't say I'm, you know, a stem cell person for everything. Certainly not. In fact, we've probably restricted what we've used stem cells for clinically over the years rather than expanded it, which might come as a surprise for a lot of people, Um, because out there you t- tend to get the impression that people are using it for everything. Um the, for me the I think the strongest evidence is still for soft tissue repair, so I think and injected locally, I think I still have some issues with remote delivery where cells end up in the lesion through the blood system. I think the one of the papers is is describing the way in which it can be targeted through the arterial delivery, and I think that's really makes a lot of sense because if you inject it onto the venous side, uh, the cell's going to end up in the lungs. But so I think there there are this is one of the reasons I chose that paper is to to try and illustrate some of the other ways at which they can be delivered. So I think soft tissue healing, yes. I, I think there are obviously products out there in terms of of um you know, for other uh musculoskeletal diseases such as joint disease. I think the message is a little less strong for those. Um And we don't have for either really the top level of evidence base, but that's very hard to do in the veterinary field. I think we do have to look to uh, the other fields, for instance, uh, even laboratory animal research, but also particularly the human side. The trouble with the stem cell side and the human side is it's still very much at a fledgling stage. Um, The the clinical trials for the cells alone are not, you know, they're not out there yet. There are a number of studies for the orthobiologics, so the other products out there. And there again, are still a little bit of a mixed picture, but some benefits, but but not you know, it's it's not a miracle cure, and I think that's probably true. I mean, I think there are. I still think when we talk, when I talk to owners and and vets about the effectiveness of regenerative medicine in tendon repair, you know, it's it's not. There's still the most important thing is to manage the case correctly in terms of accurate diagnosis early uh, anti-inflammatory approaches and then a control rehab program and that is still the most important but i think the stem cells and some of these newer treatments do have the potential to enhance the repair and i think that's where i think they still have value um the paper that that, that was uh, that i chose was related to sort of the next phase of development was the one talking about uh, extracellular vesicles and this is sort of, I think the, next, the the next game changer, at least for the practitioner, is going to be a lot more practical because I know that people don't like taking bone marrow and, and sending the cells off the bone marrow off for culture and then getting the cells back and injecting them out of ultrasound gardens. It all comes across as a bit of a fag. Although I would argue that, well, if you're going to do it properly, that's that's what it takes. But the 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 advantage of this next phase is actually, okay, we're gonna say, We know these cells are capable of interacting with white cell populations and modulating inflammation and things like that, and that's whereby they produce the benefit. That's pretty robustly shown in multiple studies across species, including the horse. So can we take the factors that those stem cells produce and use that instead of having to culture the cells and all the problems of shipping live cells, injecting them alive, and all that sort of stuff? And that really makes a lot of sense because then you can take what is as Frank Barry is, has coined a sort of cell cell inspired therapy rather than the cells themselves, and I think the you know this is one of the early papers showing showing the potential of recovering these extracellular vesicles. The trouble is at the moment is that they have can have positive and negative effects. So being able to uh, select the right ones and potentially sort them there that's technology that's still in the wings, but. I think it does just show that the, this this uh, there are new developments in this area, which is the next going to be the next or make it practical for use um uh, of treating uh, tendon injuries in the future, which is probably not going to need cells, but we're going to get a get the, the the factors that they secrete.
0: You may already have partially answered this in your response there. Um, but what is the current thinking behind how they influence their environment and potentially advanced tendon healing
1: yeah so this is also changed over the years when we started off using stem cells and and of course people will probably object to me calling them stem cells because the idea behind the the word is that they can be they are able to develop new tissue and and form a regenerative response and I and I don't like the term regenerative medicine generally because I don't think we're anywhere near regeneration at the moment but what has been fortuitous in many ways is that we now understand much better what these cells do and it's not so much the regenerative aspects but it's the way at which it can interact as i said between with the with the inflammatory process going on into the tissue and modulated in a way that allows healing to progress which of course is what steroids don't do um and um and but still result in a better quality repair through the modulation of that inflammation and I think the evidence for that is very, very strong. And I think, therefore, it gives us, um, I think that's why these agents can have an effect. Um, but it has an effect in that way rather than a regenerative uh, way. Um, and, you know, that's really where I think they still have a benefit, but we shouldn't be expecting true regeneration.
0: You've also included a section on less common injuries, um, including those of the distal sesamoidian ligaments. and you've written that you believe these structures or injury to these structures may be underdiagnosed. Why is this?
1: Yeah, so this comes uh, relates to a paper that um, I had a small part to play in with. It uh, produced by uh, a very talented resident of ours, Alex Hawkins, who's now returned to be on the staff here at the RVC. During his residency, he put together um, a, a series of distal sesamoidian ligament injuries, and these have been accumulated over a um, number of years. And it was really because there wasn't a lot out there in terms of determining outcomes, so it's difficult. It was difficult to give advice to owners about it, but also I felt that we'd learned actually there were improved ways of evaluating these, especially the oblique distal sesamoidian ligaments, where this particular paper was rather nice in showing that over 80% of those injuries to the oblique distal sesamoidian ligaments were in the proximal third of the ligaments. And the problem with that is that if we limit our scanning to the back of the past, then which then often what happens um, and we don't include the oblique views especially from the proximal part of the past then we'd miss a lot of those injuries so the speculation is that that um, and and i'm just speculating really that that maybe those oblique scans don't get done in every case and we may be missing some of those because a lot of these injuries now are diagnosed with mri and i think still a number of those could quite easily be picked up confidently by people scanning using a standard ultrasound scanner that's available uh, in practice, and scanning using those oblique projections, and it's not that this paper tells us that is better than MRI or the other way around, because we didn't do the two imaging modalities on all the cases. It's just to illustrate where the predominance of the injuries exist, um, and that the I still it makes sense to me that. Uh, one should start off with those cost-effective and less expensive imaging modalities, and, and we can achieve the diagnosis with quite a high confidence level quite frequently. But in those cases where we can't, then obviously those ones should go forward for MRI where pathology can be uh, um, sometimes more readily identified or, or, or confirmed, should I say. The interesting other paper relating to this was the al. one, where which compared the MRI and histological appearance of the bleak distal sesamoid ligaments from a large number of cadaver limbs now these were had unknown history so they weren't they were essentially i think considered to be normal or at least there was no obvious injury and they had a a frequency which i thought was remarkably high of around 25% have an evidence based on their histological scoring um now this is quite a bit different than where the frequency that at least i diagnose that condition um in the cases i see so uh, is it you know is it is it possible we are missing milder injuries yes that's quite possible um but a lot of them clinically you know you have painful foci at the back of the proximal phalanx in that depression between the bone and the and the tendons very positive flexions there you know you can localize the that area so i I'd be surprised that we're missing that many, but um, it was an interesting paper. That's why I sort of included it as sort of, well, maybe there are changes. Of course, histological abnormalities don't necessarily translate to being clinically significant. So just like we talked about right at the beginning of this uh, podcast, we were talking about how degenerative change can occur before you get clinical injury. And so this could be one, one aspect of that in these particular ligaments. But I don't think the injuries are that frequent, but I think they can easily be missed.
0: And what, what other injuries do you think are being more commonly diagnosed now with the advent of newer imaging techniques and more advanced techniques?
1: Well, I suppose the the sort of area that, that's particularly become quite prominent, certainly in the USA, is the advent of PET scanning, um, positron emission tomography, which is a sort of, I suppose, and I, I will apologise to those PET aficionados out there, but... Um, it's like a 3D bone scan to some ways. It uses a different radioactive label, but it allows you to then superimpose um, those that uptake, for instance, on a CT or something like that to show you where the particular areas of uptake are located. And what's really interesting about this particular technique is it's showing up soft tissue pathologies that I think were missed in the past. And, and uh, the chondrocesamoidian ligament is, enthesopathy is one, that is uh, very much the um potentially can be picked up with this technique um the other paper that also uh, can potentially identify these uh, these injuries and also other soft tissue injuries is osfolder al, which looked at gadolinium contrast media now i was sort of alerted to that because i known about gadolinium enhancement um for cartilage for many years it's it's been used more experimentally than clinically but it was quite interesting it's that this was focused on looking at uh, its ability to identify pathology in the foot, and and there was quite a few injuries where there was an enhancement of that pathology, the apparent appearance of that pathology, adding gadolinium. Now, whether that is going to be commercially affordable for many situations, and and I don't know, but I think um, it does show the increased potential of these imaging modalities to identify pathologies that possibly are still Uh, uncommon but of course when you miss them you're not sure about how frequently they really really are so um, you know the the, for that reason I think um, um, these two techniques are are ones for the future and as far as I'm aware I think there's only one PET scanner outside the USA at the moment but I'm sure they're going to pop up in lots of different places in the future and so uh, that's why I've sort of flagged that up because I think this may be an area for picking up some some new injuries we need to be aware of those and think about those in our differentials for for foot length and elsewhere potentially
0: so what would your your overall take-home message um it's probably quite hard to pick one from all this research um but what would your overall take-home message uh, well be i for suppose those me-
1: listening? yeah I, I suppose the message i wanted to get across really is that you know there's an I mean, if you look at the plethora of, you know, I've only selected a group of these papers. So there was others that are covered. And I apologize for those authors that didn't have those included, but I wanted to fit them into these themes. So it's not that they're less good, it's just they didn't fit with the themes I'd identified. But this is a, you know, a a massive body of work that's that's taking place across the world within the equine. I mean, these are all equine focused for the most part. And and I think it we we punch above our weight a lot of the time in what what we're investigating and a lot of I mean, I've been involved in, in research for a long time and I know that um, you know, that that when I meet clinicians and also human clinicians and, and also researchers, that, you know, the, the horse is, is definitely has a place as a as a model of human disease. And and so it's all this this body of work that's being done in the horse that will ultimately, I'm sure, lead to improved understanding and therefore of, of the mechanisms of disease and therefore being able to develop preventative strategies, which I still think are, are the holy grail, but also uh, better ways of diagnosing it and ultimately better ways of treating it. So that's why I've really tried to select those different themes to sort of cover those those three areas.
0: Well, thanks for taking time out of your busy diary to talk us through it. Um, and we wish you all the luck for your beaver presidency this year.
1: Thanks, and uh, Rhiannon, also yourself with in in your impending um, <laughs> delivery. So, uh, <laughs> I hope that thank you very much. <as well.
0: laughs> Thanks, Roger. Al Schott is a professor of equine internal medicine at Michigan State University. Al has joined us to talk about his recent paper titled Lumbar vertebral bone density is decreased in horses with pituitary PARS intermediate dysfunction. This paper is part of a special focus issue on equine endocrinology, which is being released online in February and will be in print in March. Hal, thanks very much for joining us on the EVJ podcast to discuss your recent paper in EVJ. Your introduction starts by describing the pathophysiology of pituitary pars intermediate dysfunction and comparing it to canine hypergenocorticism. Could you start by describing the pathophysiology of PPID for us in the horse and tell us a little about the differences between the two conditions?
2: Sure. Yeah, I'd be pleased to do that. So um, we used to think obviously in horses of Cushing's disease and we thought it was similar to Cushing's disease or hyperadrenocorticism in dogs in the past, you know, few decades, but um, subsequently it was recognized that different parts of the pituitary gland are affected in horses as compared to dogs. In horses, it's the pars intermedia, which is really a small part of the normal pituitary gland separating the pars distalis and the posterior portion of the pituitary gland. And it's comprised of a single cell type called a melanotrope. In the normal situation, those melanotropes aren't very active. They produce a, a large hormone called pro-opiomelanocortin, which is broken down into several other hormones, including adrenocorticotropin or ACTH. In dogs, With hyperadrenocorticism, the problem is actually in the anterior lobe of the pituitary gland where they develop a tumor that produces excess ACTH. And so they have a lot of ACTH, which works on the adrenal glands, lead to increased cortisol production and the syndrome of hyperadrenocorticism. In horses, it's actually more of a brain disease where there's a loss of dopaminergic neurons that inhibit the pars intermedia of the pituitary gland. So they normally downregulate the production of this large POMC peptide. It appears that as horses age, there's degeneration of those neurons, and so there's a progressive and slow loss of the neurons inhibiting the pars intermedia, and that allows the melanotropes in the pars intermedia to slowly increase in size and number, so they undergo hyperplasia, and as they do that, they produce more and more of this POMC peptide. And one again, one of the fragments of that POMC peptide is ACTH. What's interesting is that ACTH produced as a fragment of the POMC does not appear to have the same bioactivity as the natural ACTH produced in the anterior lobe of the horse pituitary gland. So it doesn't have as dramatic of effect on the adrenal glands. That said, The high levels of the ACTH-like peptide, we call it immunoreactive ACTH, probably still does have some effect on the adrenal glands. So there is still some degree of cortisol excess in horses with PPID.
0: Um, And how do you find that this manifests? What clinical signs are associated with PPID in the horse?
2: Well, I think most people recognize that the classic sign for PPID or you know what we call again used to call equine Cushing's disease is the long shaggy hair coat that fails to shed, and that hair coat uh, seems to be associated with uh, the peptides. And the POMC family, but we don't really understand the mechanism. We know that the hair follicles are staying in the growth phase called antigen instead of turning off. And so the hair just continues to slowly, slowly grow, but the specific cause of that is unknown. And so that's a different sign clearly than what we see with canine hyperadrenocorticism. The other things we'll see is loss of muscle mass. We'll see some um, increased urination and uh, In drinking or PUPD, in some of the animals, we'll see some abnormal sweating, either excessive sweating or a decrease in sweating. Some of the horses also will have um, develop uh, wounds that don't heal so well or chronic infections. And then the really the most devastating clinical sign that we have to work deal with with PPID is whether horses develop laminitis. Depending on the series of cases that have been studied, somewhere between. 30 and 80% of the horses in the case series will have some signs of laminitis. We now recognize that that laminitis is probably more driven by insulin dysregulation, but it can be sort of a concurrent endocrinopathy with PPID. And we believe that getting the PPID under control with treatment may attenuate the severity and decrease the uh, f- frequency of relapses of laminitis in horses that do have PPID combined with laminitis.
0: Your previous study um, that you conducted prior to this one, um, you measured cortical bone thickness of the metacarpal bone. So what did your results show in relation to PPID?
2: So the first question is why we're even looking at bone anyway, and that's because there are some old case reports with really horses with quite advanced PPID that have had some spontaneous or pathologic fractures. Now, it's unclear if that's just an age-related phenomenon or associated with PPID, and so when we were looking at some of the other clinical syndromes we see in dogs and people with Cushing syndrome, it is recognized that they'll get vertebral fractures and other bone problems. And that's not something that's really been described with PPID in horses. Probably over the last 10 to 15 years with PPID and horses, we've been really focused narrowly on diagnosis and using ACTH and really maybe not paying as much attention as to the pathophysiology disease and all the clinical syndromes. And I've been interested in the variety of clinical syndromes, and so we were interested in pursuing whether there should be or could be some bone abnormalities with PPID. Our first study was just sort of a branch off of another study um, in which bone was not our primary interest, but we had to put a a series of older horses to sleep, some with PPID and some without. And so we just did an initial sort of preliminary study doing CT of the cannon bones. And we found some minor differences in bone thickness between the PPID horses and the just older horses, but they were very inconsistent. And so there was no... um, There was no uh, really significant difference. And then basically recognizing that, you know, if we're going to find these bone problems, if we looked in dogs and people, they're more likely in in non-weight-bearing bones like the vertebrae. And so in this study, where we harvested, again, tissues from horses that we had to euthanize, we looked at both the cannon bones as well as the lumbar vertebrae and compared those bones between PPID horses and non-PPID horses.
0: Okay. So what did you hypothesize that you'd find?
2: Well, we just sort of based on what was had been found in people and dogs, and we hypothesized that there would be a decrease in bone mineral density in the lumbar vertebrae of the horses with PPID as compared to aged horses without clinical signs of PPID, as well as a group of young, healthy horses.
0: How many horses did you manage to recruit? Um, and what were your inclusion criteria?
2: So our inclusion criteria was Generally healthy horses that were being donated for other reasons. So, some of them had orthopedic disease where they were no longer able to be performance horses, other reasons. And so, um, you know, it is always challenging to get. Uh, horse owners to donate their animals for a terminal study but we ended up getting six horses with PPID in various stages but fairly advanced and then we had I think six five or six old aged horses without clinical signs of PPID and then also four young horses less than ten years of age without signs of PPID obviously our inclusion c- criteria again were again that they were relatively healthy otherwise in um, the aged horses obviously an in- whether or not they had PPID was categorized those two groups.
0: Could you explain your study protocol for us, um, including what you were testing for and what you looked at?
2: So we admitted all the horses to the hospital and let them sort of acclimate for a day or two. Then we just did some routine blood work on them, a serum biochemistry profile. We measured their body weights, their body condition scores. And then we did a TRH stimulation test to look at their response and ACTH to be supportive of PPID or not. After that, we went ahead and put the horses to sleep, and within the first hour after putting them to sleep, we harvested the brain and the pituitary gland, and then also harvested um, one front cannon bone or one hind cannon bone, as well as the lumbar spine. We froze the bones for a period of time, took the tissue off, and then placed them in a CT unit to measure their bone mineral density.
0: How did you use CT to measure this bone mineral density?
2: So we took the frozen bones and we thawed them out overnight. We dissected out all the soft tissue associated with them. And then we used what's called a phantom device, which is a metal device that is, allows us to compare the density in the bone compared to the density of that device. And so we did that individually for the front and hind cannon bones. And we did that at three levels uh, of the cannon bone at the midpoint at 25% from either end. And then we did the same thing for the vertebrae, uh, tried to get L3, l 4 L5, and L6 on all the specimens, but we didn't consistently have all the vertebrae the way we harvested the tissue. So we had the third, fourth, and fifth lumbar vertebrae pretty consistently. And again, we looked at the bone mineral density of those bones um, at sort of the midpoint and at 25% and 75% along the bone. We also looked at two types of bone the cortical bone, which is the hard bone, and then also the trabecular bone, which is the softer bone.
0: And lastly, you put these bones through biomechanical testing. So, could you describe what you did at this point?
2: Yeah, so we did that just in the old horses, so the ones with PPID and non-PPID horses. Um, it's a bit of a, a bit of a difficult test to do. What we actually had to do is really dissect all the tissue, and we only did it on the fourth lumbar vertebrae. We had to take off uh, the lateral rid. Uh, Process as well as dorsal process, and, and then put it into this sort of cup uh, with a hard foam to sort of seal it in there, and then basically just put it into a machine that progressively put more force on it until the bone was disrupted. So we could see it force a fracture, we could see the change in the bone. That's maybe it. it, it We did that because that's a test that was available to us. It may not be the best test really to actually assess bone mineral density or bone strength. It was just one of the methodologies that was available to us.
0: So you ended up with three cohorts, your PPID positive cohort, and then your young and old PPID negative cohorts. What were the main differences between samples obtained from each of these?
2: Yeah, so our hypothesis was actually supported in that we did find about a 25% to 30% decrease in bone mineral density of both the cortical and the trabecular bone in the aged horses with PPID as compared to the aged horses without PPID and the young horses. And it was very scary. Uh, curious because that was very similar to a findings in a paper that they uh, had done in dogs also using CT analysis for bone mineral density, and they found a similar decrease in the percentage of bone mineral density in the canine vertebrae uh, as well, in the the ones with hyperadrenocorticism.
0: So why do you think PPID causes this decrease in bone mineral density in specifically non-weight bearing bones? And why also the difference between weight-bearing and non-weight-bearing?
2: Well, those are the questions we didn't answer in the study, but certainly those are the questions that are raised. Um, We know in people and in dogs that excess cortisol can have adverse effects on the bone, whether uh, people are given corticosteroids for controlling some other, say, immune-mediated diseases. One of the complications of that can lead to pathologic fractures and loss of bone mineral density. Interestingly, with the bone mineral density loss in the dog vertebrae, that's recognized, but fractures are not recognized all that commonly. So um, certainly cortisol may play a role in that. Um, The other thing is we did find that there was an association with an elevation in parathormone, another hormone that's produced that helps control calcium metabolism and the bone mineral density. The higher the parathormone. Parathormone, the lower the bone mineral density. Unfortunately, with our small number of animals in the study, we didn't have strong power to make those uh, much better associations. So we didn't see obvious differences in parathormone in the PPID group versus the non-PPID group. However, over the years, I've also measured parathormone in a few other PPID horses just out of curiosity. And I found them to be um, elevated in some horses. So it may be that there is some disruption of the parathormone uh, axis and physiology in horses with PPID. And that would obviously require further study.
0: Okay. There weren't any differences in factors with your biomechanical testing, such as force at fracture or strain um, of the fourth lumbar vertebrae in the three different cohorts, but you did find a reduced bone mineral density in the PPID positive group. So how can you explain this discrepancy?
2: Well, there's going to be a number of factors that could contribute to whether or not a bone fractures or not. Bone mineral density is just one of those. So it would have told a nicer story if we would have found that the force of fracture was less in the horses with PPID, but we did not find that. Again, we had limited by the small numbers of, of Uh, bones that we tested. And again, those biomechanical factors, there are other things that could be done. We could have potentially taken the bones and ashed them to look at their total mineral. We unfortunately did not do that in this study. So again, the the different tests test different characters of bone, um, and they all potentially can have additive effects on an increased risk of developing a fracture.
0: Thinking about your um, quantitative analysis using CT for looking at bone mineral density, is this one of the most sensitive methods, or are other methods available? Could this could this um, explain the discrepancy in results? <laughs>
2: Quantitative CT appears to be a fairly good method for looking at that. It's, um, and just for, you know, uh, to give an example, if you just looked at the CT images, as you would look at radiographs, there were no obvious differences. But when we did the quantitative analysis, that's when we came up in the difference in the bone mineral density. So it's not something that's obvious to look at on that. And that's why, like radiographs, we certainly don't get the detail of the lumbar vertebrae, and radiographs would not allow us to. To see any differences there, Uh, they do some other testing in people, a screening test for bone mineral density that aren't yet available in horses. Um, But one of the papers we had found showed that when they were doing abdominal CTs in humans for other purposes, when they then analyzed the vertebrae on those CT scans in people, um, to look for bone mineral density, they found that comparable results between that and uh, other tests called DEXA testing that they do in people for bone mineral density. So it was a reasonable thing to pursue in horses, <clears throat> and could be done on the post mortem specimens that we had.
0: Did your lab analyses of parathormone, ionized calcium, hydroxyvitamin D, and osteocalcin also differ between the groups? And how do these results reflect the pathophysiology of the decreased bone mineral density
2: yeah so that was something we did after the fact when we found that there was a difference in the bone mineral density. We had left over blood samples from when we did our TRH stimulation tests, and unfortunately, there was quite a bit of variation in all three groups of horses there. And because of the variation, there weren't significant differences in those values between the groups. The only thing that we did find, as I mentioned, is that parathormone tended to be higher in the PPID horses that had the greater uh, greatest deficit in bone mineral density. So there was a a significant negative correlation between the parathormone concentration and the bone mineral density. Again, we would need a larger number of all those uh, groups of horses to really look at that more critically.
0: Were, Were there any other mechanisms other than PPID in this group of horses that could have explained the lower bone mineral density you found in the PPID horses?
2: Well, certainly age is a factor. We know that osteoporosis is a problem as people age, increasing the risk of fracture that would be independent potentially of endocrine diseases. And that's one of the reasons we specifically had a control group of aged horses that did not have clinical evidence or uh, supportive endocrine tests for PPID. So that provides some degree of support that PPID could be one of the mechanisms, but it doesn't fully exclude other mechanisms that we did not explore.
0: Do you foresee any changes in your clinical practices um, for PPID-positive horses with this research? And are you intending to investigate the area any further?
2: Um, This was sort of a side project of another project we were doing on PPID, looking at some of the changes in the actual brain itself and the pituitary gland. So it's not something that we're probably going to continue to follow along because it would take a larger cohort of horses to look at some of those things. I guess in terms of clinical practice, there's not a whole lot we could do to potentially reverse changes in bone mineral density in the PPID horses. But I, I guess one of my goals of my career has been to further define some of the clinical syndromes we see in association with PPID, all the different clinical signs, again, being different somewhat than small animal hybrid So years ago, our laboratory was the one that showed that the Follicle state and persistent growth or antigen, and that would explain the hypertrichosis. Um, at this point, you know, again, looking at different syndromes and trying to understand them better is one of our goals. We're probably not going to pursue any further bone testing, but we may look at parathormone more in horses with PPID.
0: Okay, and how, what's your take home message for clinicians listening?
2: I guess take home messages is that, again, there are multiple clinical signs associated with PPID. Uh, and this is one that had not been previously demonstrated that there can be a de- decrease in bone mineral density. And so um, although spontaneous fracture is not necessarily you know, a common clinical problem in horses with PPID, I would say that there is a potential for them to be at increased risk. And we followed a cohort of PPID horses, about 30 of them Uh, for about 10 years to look at the long-term effects of being on pergolide. And actually, one of those horses did end up having a, a spontaneous fracture when it slipped on the ice. But again, it could have been slipping on the ice. So I guess that we would think of all old horses perhaps at risk of having a catastrophic fracture. And PPID might increase that risk slightly.
0: Okay, well, thanks very much for your time in explaining the research to us today. Um, That's really interesting to listen to.
2: Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Hal. Yep. Thanks again for listening. And please join us for the April episode of the EVJ and Conversation podcast, in which we'll talk through the Beaver Primary Care Guidelines on PPID with Nicola Menzies Gap.